Hello and welcome again to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. This week, all this week, we've been discussing uh, Brexit uh, and what it might mean for investors and for the uh, uh, economy, both uh, here and overseas. Uh, I'm delighted to, today to be joined by uh, Ken Fisher, the uh, West Coast money manager who I've known for many years. He has a very successful wealth management business in the UK, as well as being a uh, regular and uh, uh, well-read uh, columnist in uh, in Forbes and the Financial Times over here. Ken, I'm very happy to uh, have this opportunity to discuss a Brexit with you. This is a little local difficulty we've been having over here. Uh, I'm very keen to um, help our uh, listeners put the what's happened in some kind of perspective, and I can't think of anyone better to do that than, than you, sitting uh, as you do in uh, California. Uh, you come over here very often, I know. So first of all, was it a when you heard the news about Brexit, was it a surprise to you? Uh, absolutely, it was a surprise, but it wasn't uh, a killer. It was a surprise. Okay. Had you, uh, your colleagues in uh, the UK were presumably like everybody else in the financial services business over here, they couldn't uh, understand that uh, the population of the UK, when invited, uh, would do something which they believe would be uh, an act of self-harm, I suppose you could say. Well, I don't know if this uh, word translates well into your version of English, but uh, from my perspective, they they felt gobsmacked, absolutely whackified. <laughs> we understand that well enough. They were completely taken aback for reasons I'm sure we, we can understand. It's obvious, I think, to most of us over here that this uh, event reflected a whole series of different uh, factors that affected people's decision to vote the way they did. And that's one of the issues with uh, referendums, of course. Now, I think you're obviously well known for being on record as saying that uh, what really matters to investors and and markets is uh, the reality uh, of economic fundamentals and that politics uh, doesn't often make a huge difference. Um, Do you think this is an exception to that rule? No. (laughs) In other words, you think that uh, uh, whatever the impact of this is going to be in economic terms, either for the UK or more globally, it's too early to say what that might be. And in any event, uh, it will only have a marginal impact on the economic fundamentals. Is that is that what you're saying? That's one way to put it. Another way I'd put it is that market-wise, it looks like we uh, were a vehicle moving relatively quickly that hit a speed bump and are otherwise going to keep going. The, Forces in my mind, and again, I want to come back to why I wasn't quite as shocked as a lot of people, although I was surprised, uh, and why I think there's further implications that are broader for uh, the world. But simply said, everything has to be negotiated in this. Everything has to be decided. No one understands what will happen, and that makes people feel like there's this infinite uncertainty. But the certainty is that huge vested interests will lobby the dickens out of this on both sides of the channel before it's over. And my heart is someplace in between that of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And in that regard, I believe that the vested interests that are big, not little, will, if you will, buy their way through the political system into forms of normalcy that will still end up having the exit occur, but will have the exit occur in a way that is so watered down before it's all over that 
It won't mean too much. That's what I believe will happen. Fundamentally, when you get right down to it in every part of not just British life, but global life, the forces, I mean, my, my firm has no idea what the regulatory features will be that will impact us in the future because, and I don't know that you do or don't know this, Jonathan, but today we operate in every Western European country and we have um, regulatory passports to those countries from our status in London through an EU passport. Uh, we have a lot of employees that we brought into London from overseas. Uh, when I say overseas, I mean across the channel. And fundamentally, we have no idea how they'll be impacted by that, but I know a lot bigger fish than us will do the frying. And the frying will have them in very similar modes to what we're in, not just in financial services, but throughout every portion of the realm, pharma, everything else. And in that process, it will be less than people think. It will be, to use your words quite correctly, more marginal than people think. And uh, will have less of an impact than people think. So putting that into into sort of concrete terms, that implies that you're uh, thinking that we will end up being uh, in some kind of associate membership of a free trade area uh, with or without some uh, uh, changes at the margin to the uh, free movement of people and or free movement of labor, uh, but that the regulations will still have to be thrashed out and still have to be endured by uh, people like yourself in, in firms like yourself. Yes, and because there are so many details that have to be worked out, I don't care what anybody says today. It's going to take a long time to do it. That is, broad principles may be agreed on, but uh, broad principles are largely meaningless. And ultimately, the devil will be in the details. The details will take a long time and will marginalize most factors. And let me just say that I've been saying all of this year, which started out, of course, as a very bumpy year in markets, that I've considered this year to be a year of falling uncertainty, starting the year with very high levels of uncertainty, and with the uncertainty, whether it's this or the U.S. presidential elections or so many other things, ones that fall with irregular bumpy volatility along the way. But I think by the time we get to the end of the year, this story, Brexit, will be a very old story and boring. The media will have tired of thrashing it. The public will have tired of the media thrashing it. And we'll move on to other things. And the things will get more boring. And as they do, I think that's good for stocks. Boring is always good for stocks. Well, I'm sure you're right about that. I mean, tomorrow, as you probably know, over here in the UK, we've got the publication of the Toolcott Report, which is our mammoth multi-year inquiry into the how the government handled the uh, Iraq war, which is back in as you know, 2003, so that's 13 years it's taken to get here. That's going to dominate the newspapers over here for the next few days. And then we'll be back onto the cycle of what the Fed's going to do. Mr. Trump, uh, China, and all the other things, as you say, will come back into the equation. And it'll uh, and Brexit, I, I suspect, will indeed, as you say, uh, gradually, at least once we've got a new prime minister in place, gradually uh, move off centre stage. Um, I think that's quite likely. Um, the other point you make, I think, uh, made in the past many times is, of course, that the stock market in particular is a discounting machine. Uh, it looks forward in time, um, but the time period it looks forward to is relatively short. And so it's quite likely, I guess, that um, by the time the market has fully absorbed the changes, these changes aren't going to happen for maybe two years. So uh, it's a bit too early to be deciding what the market's going to conclude about. The 
or more. Let, let, let me just stop you right there. Uh, the things worded the way the things worded, but there's no penalty if things are actually negotiated longer than two years. And negotiators don't like to move quickly. They like to move slowly. That's what they do best. They don't like actually, they like five more coffee breaks and a little more time to think about it the third time. And maybe we can come back to it again tomorrow. There's no penalty if it takes longer than two years. There's so much to be negotiated. Nobody's going to get their heads wrapped around this. Okay, so um, that's uh, both a comforting and an uncomforting message, I suppose one, one could say. Um, do you let, me give you a, let me give you a less comforting message. Okay. I think the fundamental feature that still most in Britain miss, most in America miss, and most on the continent miss, and nobody in the middle of Africa thinks about, is that simply said, if you just look at the vote, it was, forgetting Scotland, just within England, urban versus non-urban straight up. I mean, just simple, urban versus non-urban. And the non-urban came out and the urban less so. Yep. And that's the difference. Now, once you accept that, what you see around the world is a huge uprising, a pulsing, if you will, of non-urban. That's what Trump is in America. That's also, to some extent, what Sanders is in America. People don't get this in America. Let me just take a second to talk about this. If you go back in time, not very far, and you look at the bottom of America, not the top, it was a Democratic Party-dominated country with most of the state legislatures, of which all but one state have two legislatures, Nebraska has one, All most of them, two-thirds of them, Democratic. Some split, a few Republican. And among the poorest states and the richest states. Today, if you just look at the 33 poorest states, Democrats only have two of the state legislatures, only two. They are overwhelmingly, the vote is non-urban based. The Democrats still control the megacities, the big places, just like in the British Brexit vote. It's the same demographic. It's the non-urban that feels left behind, abandoned, and angstful. And when you look at that, you can see the same thing in places like Denmark right now. Italy with the five-star movement. You can see it in France. You can see it in Austria's presidential vote with Hoffer. You just go on and on and you see the power of the non-urban pulsing and the urban folk are all stuck in the cities. Media stuck in the cities. Pundits are stuck in the cities. In America, the political class is stuck in D.C. and New York. The intellectual elite is stuck in five cities. And they have a hard time actually fathoming this non-urban pulsing. And in fact, that's part of the surprise with the Brexit vote is that the same forces were largely centered in London. Big surprise that they'd be centered in London. And my view very simply is that if this world doesn't keep an eye out on the non-urban world, there's potentials for much bigger surprises and much bigger upsets. If you look, for example, at the U.S. presidential election, the standard way that pundits look at the past is to think of the last five presidential elections in which states with electoral college votes, which is what ultimately matters in, in the American presidential system, which states voted four out of five times Republican, four out of five times Democrat. 
If you look at those same states today compared to just a few years ago at how their legislatures are from the bottom up, they're completely different than that. Will those states vote bottom up or top down? Top down the way they have the last five times or bottom up from the way they voted for their legislatures? I don't have a clue. But if you don't follow that bottom up and small, tiny town America, you're vulnerable in all of these countries to the same surprise that happened with Brexit. And that could blow apart the EU. It can have huge impacts for uh, trade globally. Will that happen? I do not know. I am not saying that will happen. I'm saying that watching the non-urban is critical to understanding the political outcome and its potential ramifications. I think that's a very powerful message and one that we all need to think about. It's certainly, uh, I think, evident over here. Does that mean, in, incidentally, that you think that uh, Trump has a chance to win the Republican, to win the presidential uh, race? Let me say that this way. I don't know who will win the presidential race, but I would say the odds slightly favor him over Hillary Clinton. Let me explain why. And I'm not terribly afraid of that either, in the same way that I'm not afraid of uh, Brexit. Let me explain why. Uh, that alone, I'm not afraid of. Let me explain why. If the states that have both houses Republican vote for the Republican nominee, he has 29 more electoral votes out the gate than he needs to get elected president. And, and nobody gets this, in the biggest states, he's going to get killed where he loses, like California, much more than in the ones that he's going to win, like Texas. He'll win the second biggest state, Texas, which is only two-thirds the size of California, population-wise by a much smaller percentage than he's going to get killed by in California. And if you take those biggest states and you see the spread there, he can actually win the presidency in the Electoral College and will if he loses the popular vote by two full percent. It's a stunning feature that no one seems to have done the math on. You, you, you lose the popular vote by 2% because he's going to get killed more in the states where he's going to lose anyway than he's going to win by in the states he's going to win anyway. He can win the presidency while losing the popular vote fairly big, and that's the factor that I don't think thought through. So it's going to be worse than George Bush and the hanging chads. It's going to be, it could actually work the other way. You could, uh, you're saying he could uh, get 49% of the vote or 48% of the vote and still win in the Electoral College. That's very interesting. Well, I wouldn't, 49, yeah, I wouldn't go 48, because if he gets 48, then he loses by 4%, not 2%. Okay. Uh, and I don't think the math quite stretches that far. But he could, he could, it could be 49, 51, him on the low side, and he would be President of the United States. That's, that's the part that nobody's thought through. If he's, if as you get to the election, he's 2% behind in the polls, he's almost surely President. Well, that's a very interesting thought. We all need to ponder that. Uh, now, the next question is the obvious one, uh, which I think I know your answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, if he was to be elected, or if this trend, this worldwide trend that you've been talking about, develops further, is that positive or negative for uh, the way that people should be investing their money? I don't think whether Mr. Trump is elected or not singularly is all that important. I think the presidency more makes the person than people think it does. The president in America is much more limited in power than most people globally think, much more so than in most countries. Uh, the checks and balances in America really impede the president much more than people think. Now, that having been said, the trend you're talking about is disruptive, and markets don't like disruptive. 
to the extent that the pulsing of the non-urban world gets explosive, it's not good. Now, mind you, that's not, that not, I'm not saying that will happen. I, I never said that will happen. I said it's something to keep an eye out for. It's a risk. It's an important risk. And it's a risk that if it were to be realized, would be scary and negative if it were to occur on a broad scale. Occurring in a place here and there is not a big deal. By contrast, arguing against that, the Spanish vote that just occurred was a top-down, urban-based vote where they won and the non-urban stayed home. I don't know what will happen. I'm not making a forecast. I'm suggesting something to keep an eye out for. So let me just extend that a little further. Looking at regional economic indicators rather than national helps you see where the rural's most angstful. Likewise, looking at initial votes rather than um, final votes, uh, like with uh, the recent one in France, where the initial vote, the, the primary vote, was very rural-based, the final vote, the urbans came back and took over, gives you a sense of where the trends are going, and, and I'd be focused more than people ever have on the ruralness. Okay. Um, and then just stepping back again and putting this in the context of where you think we are in terms of the market cycle and so on, um, you obviously got had a very good track record recently of... Uh, being right about the direction of the uh, of the financial markets, you're only as good as your last uh, forecast, I guess. But uh, you're still you have been very positive about risk assets and so on. Are you still in that camp at the moment? Uh, what with all the things that are going on? Yeah, I think this is uh, a classic long global bull market that will end up being the longest bull market in history, but far from the most robust. It's a joyless bull market. It grinds on without uh, any bubbly spirit. It grinds on with people still trying to fight the last war. It grinds on with people still looking for black swans around every corner. It grinds on with people presuming the worst. Just look at exactly how the media has responded to Brexit and how uh, the British so often regularly throughout my life, having had a stiff upper lip, seem to have their lip largely quivering on this one, which is very un-British-like. Uh, my reaction is that there's enough fear, there's enough skepticism that shy of some really big, bad, terrible thing happening, the bull market joylessly grinds on and just gets longer and longer than people can think, can expect. And the more they don't expect it, the more it's likely to occur. Well, that's there's certainly no evidence of um, the euphoria that, uh, that John Templeton likes to talk about as being a marking the peak of a, of a bull market. We haven't seen anything like that. Uh, you're so you and, I have, you and I have both been long Templeton fans, and uh, the fact of the matter is that I've got a view that Templeton's either right on this almost always, that you know, bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die of euphoria, or they run into some big, bad, terrible thing that was completely unexpected and never been pre-priced into the marketplace. And can that happen? Of course it can. Is that likely at this point? Not that I can see. Therefore, I expect it to grind on. Okay, and our final question, because uh, our time is up, Kenneth. Uh, we have only skated the surface, of course, of this. But as I say, you own a business in, in the UK. You've uh, invested uh, capital into the UK. Will you be staying in the UK despite the vote, or will you be upping sticks and moving to Frankfurt or some other place? Let me answer that this way. 
if the outcome of Brexit were to actually require us to not have our regulatory and our people that service the continent in London, if that was the way it was required to be, we would keep what we needed in London to operate for Britain, and we would move people or hire people on the continent. Uh, we have the ability to do that. Would I prefer to do that? No. Do I think we'll do that? No. Uh, is it completely impossible that we would do that? Um, it could happen, but I don't think it's very likely. Very good. Well, thank you, Ken. Uh, it's been very useful to talk to you in this way, and I hope we can uh, repeat this conversation in the future. It's always uh, very stimulating to hear your views. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Jonathan. Okay, thanks very much. Mm -hmm.